Hey peoples, it's Kunan, and today I am drinking water. In today's episode, I would like to talk about access to mental health care, but not just access to mental health care for Alaskans, but access to mental health care for minors who are too young to find the resources they need in Alaska. I myself in the past have struggled to get the mental health care that I needed, but there are resources set up for adults all across Alaska. It is hard, and I will do an episode on that later. However, in this episode, I would like to talk about what it's like in trying to find health care for one of your own children. And I have a guest speaker with me. This is Ahnang Lulurak. Natasha Gamash. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Kunan. Hello, everyone. My Inupak name is Ahlang Lalurak. My Hlinket name is Klikluklo. And my English name is Natasha Gamash. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for coming and doing this episode. I know that you have a lot on your plate right now. So I really appreciate your doing this. You're welcome. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So before I begin asking questions, would you just like to tell us a little bit about your story so that way we have some background? So uh, my story is I am uh, I'm in Yupik, Yupik and white. Uh, my mother's native. Uh, my dad is white. When my parents met, they were both from very... Uh, abusive, very toxic um, families that were afflicted by alcoholism, addiction, domestic violence, and, um, and mental illness. So my parents met as teenagers. They got pregnant with me, and so I was born to two teenage alcoholic addicts. Unfortunately, my parents started repeating the same patterns that they saw with their families, addiction, alcoholism, domestic violence, mental illness. So what ended up happening is I, um, you know, I was sent to live with my father's mother for a little bit. And then after that, I was sent to live with my grandmother in Nome. And I, I was predominantly raised by my grandmother in Nome. Uh, and so that's where I grew up. That's where I tell people I'm from. That's where I lived the longest, you know, growing up. And so growing up experiencing those traumas definitely had a big impact on me. And I didn't know how to handle that in a healthy way. So I started following that same pattern of alcoholism, addiction, right? domestic violence and mental illness. And so for me, I started drinking at 11. My first drink was my first drunk. It was also the first time that I used drugs. And uh, I always tell people that um, from that point on, it was like a horse out of the gate, right? At the racetrack, I, I drank as much as I could, as often as I could get my hands on it. And using was the same way. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate 
nobody wants to live that way. But I tell people, you know, I was in a lot of pain. And I know that my parents, what they went through, they had a lot of pain. And they didn't know how to handle that pain, right? They didn't know how to manage it. And they have these big feelings and it gets overwhelming. And I understand that because I went through it. So what happened is, is, you know, I would try to get mental health help, but being from rural Alaska, it's very hard to get. So eventually at 18, I became a mom and I started that pattern myself of now I've got children and they're experiencing me with alcoholism and addiction and domestic violence and mental illness. And so, you know, I, I had six kids in 12 years. The first two I had in Nome, then I moved to Anchorage, and I've pretty much been here ever since. So the last four I've had down here. And, you know, because I had picked two men just like my dad, go figure, right? These were not healthy men. And so they weren't good to me and they certainly were not good to my children and that's where my son's story begins so you know I was clean and sober when I got pregnant with my son I was in recovery by the time I had my son Logan I was almost two years clean and sober working a rigorous program doing everything I could to be active in the recovery community that I got clean and sober in so even though my son didn't see me drinking or using, what he did see was his father who was drinking and using and was also perpetrating domestic violence. And then our family as a whole was experiencing this like collective mental illness, right? It's a trauma, trauma bonding and uh, Again, it's that pain of, I have really big pain. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't have anyone safe to help me deal with it. So, you know, Logan saw that for about three years and then his father actually went to prison for sexually abusing children. After that, and you had kids that had uh, experienced that trauma who needed some very significant help. But they were teenagers at this point, and so it was a little easier to navigate the mental health system. The challenge with Logan was his age, because we don't see a lot of children that need therapy, and at least we don't perceive that we need it, at three and four years old. And so what happened was, was I was trying to get care for Logan and I couldn't access it. Uh, I was told that, well, for a child that age, he needs something called filial therapy, which is a, a very specialized form of family therapy that's done through play with small children. But there are no filial therapists that accept Medicaid. So then I was stuck with, well, where do I go? Uh, eventually, I was able to find a resource because um, my children were the victims of violent crimes, as was I. We were eligible for violent crimes compensation benefits through the state of Alaska. 
I was able to apply. It took some help because VCCB, it, it's my perception that they don't want to help people. They create barriers to make it difficult to access uh, the services that are available to them. So once I got the help, things kind of moved along at a little bit quicker pace, but uh, then the problem was finding a filial therapist that would take VCCB. Eventually we found one and we were able to meet with her for about a year and then uh, we had to go our separate ways through no fault of anyone's own, but our times weren't matching up. She didn't have anything available. I was in college, so we left. Now at this point, Logan's out of five or something, six. My son ends up going to, uh, you know, school. He starts going to school at three, right? Because we find out, oh, Logan had a daycare had to do these little quizzes where they test to see what are your gross motor skills, what are your fine motor skills, and like what's your social emotional level. And he did very badly on all of them. So we get a pick referral. Pick says, oh, he's got some gross motor delays and fine motor delays, but he's too old to work with us. He needs to go to ASD. So we go to ASD. Logan does two years of early intervention. He did great. Uh, he made a lot of progress. And, um, you know, and then he started kindergarten. He did very well in kindergarten, had an amazing teacher. And then he started first grade. And what happened in first grade was so thinking back to the trauma, Logan was a victim of domestic violence by his father. And because of that, Logan has some issues controlling some of his bodily functions. Now, for smaller kids, this is not noticeable because they're smaller, you know, whatever, everybody has accidents or, you know, things like that. But once you start getting older, kids notice. And what happened is, is kids noticed. And around that same time, Logan was also diagnosed with autism. So now we've got a child who not only has a trauma history, but now we've added a developmental disability on top of that. And then you add on, you know, the medical implications of physical abuse. And so kids would make fun of him and they would bully him and they would tease him. And the teachers wouldn't do anything about it, but they complained about his behavior and it just kept getting worse and getting worse. And I had to get, you know, an attorney involved and things kept getting worse. And eventually I notified the school. I said, hey, you know, Logan is reporting to me that he's suicidal and we need to make a safety plan. I emailed them this. They said the soonest they could meet with me was three weeks later. So do you want me to send my kid to school for three weeks with no safety plan when he's suicidal? Well, we waited and during that, that three weeks, Logan attempted suicide for the first time. He tried to drown himself in my bathtub in my house. And that was February of 2020. So right before the COVID pandemic reached the US. Now, when Logan was there, the objective of North Star Hospital 
proper is medication. That's all they do. They say, we're going to do stabilization. And for them, what they mean by stabilization is medication intervention. That's all they do, right? So they're going to do some assessments and they go, oh, he's ADHD. Well, he needs some ADHD medicine. Oh, he's autistic. He must need, you know, some kind of medication for that. Usually like, you know, Seroquel or something, right? Or Abilify. And so they put him on medication and then they discharged him home. No discharge plan. They gave me two blank pieces of paper. I said, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? They said, oh, we don't know. So then the shutdown happened and I tried to access services for Logan, but you know, it's a pandemic. Um, things are shut down. And then as time progresses, it's like some people are masking, but not everybody's masking. Some clinics are, anti-maskers and so damn we can't go to that clinic and then some clinics are closing because you know they couldn't afford the loss in income or you know they want to go back home to family whatever you know there's so there's a lot of upheaval in the medical and therapeutic communities so we had you know significant access to care issues we kept trying and trying and we couldn't access anything. And at the same time, I was working with the school district to try to get an IEP developed for my son that was appropriate. And I swear to God, trying to get an appropriate IEP for my son through the Anchorage School District is like pulling teeth. I used to tell people I have a better chance of becoming the next Mrs. Donald Trump than I do from getting an appropriate IEP through the Anchorage School District. And I'm 100 pounds overweight. So we all know I don't have a dog's chance in hell of becoming the next Mrs. Donald Trump. And that tells you how good my odds are of getting an IEP through ASD. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't be that hard. And we fought probably two years, close to two years, where I'm fighting. And they're resisting every step of the way, every single step. We finally, we got an IEP developed, but Logan's been at home because of the pandemic. The schools were closed and everything else. Anyway, so fast forward to 2021, Logan attempts suicide again, and he ends up at ANMC for a week and a half, and then he goes to North Star. And North Star says, well, Logan needs residential care. I said, well, I already know this. We don't have residential for children his age in Alaska. And he said, that's correct. He's going to have to go out of state. I said, okay, well, what do we do? They said, well, we'll send out referrals. I said, okay. So they claim to have made referrals, which come to find out those never happened. Then they discharge Logan again, no discharge plan. They send him home. And then it, it, rolls around to July of 2021 and it happens again. Logan's trying to hurt himself. We take him back to the emergency room. He goes back to North Star. And this time I followed up with those referrals that North Star made. And what I found is that they lied about making those referrals in the first place. They never made them. And I said, okay, I'm gonna start calling these places. I'm gonna find out how do you refer? Because as a parent, I have the ability to refer my son. I have the ability to apply 
And as long as a doctor is saying that Logan needs it, then Medicaid should sign off on it. Well, North Star got angry with me. And I, and I involved my legislators because I said, hey, we're here a third time. He's not getting any of the care he needs. You know, what the heck are we gonna do? So these legislators get a hold of Division of Behavioral Health and DBH fast tracks his application through to, to get greenlit to go out of state for residential, but now we're stuck with, it's still a pandemic. Where do we send him? There's waiting lists, there's staffing shortages, you know, the whole shebang. And so, uh, you know, we're waitlisted and they send Logan back home. So Logan came home and, you know, nothing's changed. So nothing's changed. His behavior is still that of he's dangerous to himself and he's dangerous to others. Not because he's bad. He's not bad. He's a very good kid. He has a very big heart. He's very proud to be in Yupak and Yupik. He loves his culture. He loves our homeless family. But again, he's got those really big feelings of, I've seen things, I've experienced things, and I don't know how to handle it. And so that comes out as these really unsafe behaviors. I don't know how to help him through that. So I keep you know, calling DBH and DBH says, take him back to the ER, take him back to the ER. Well, Logan's been to the ER four times since he's been discharged at the end of August, 2021. Now this last time he went in was December 28th. He went to the emergency department at Providence. Now all the other times that I had taken him, I would take him to the emergency room and I would say, hey, Logan's being unsafe. And I would tell them what happened. And they would say, well, uh, he looks all right now. You could just take him home. And I said, what? And they go, yeah, he, he looks fine now. You could just take him home. And I said, no, you're not understanding. He just did, you know, and I tell them whatever happened. And they would say, well, look, we're busy treating real sick patients. We don't have time for those. Nothing would happen. They would just tell us to leave. So we left. No help, nothing. And we can't get any help anywhere. Logan, at this point, Logan has been denied by every mental health program in the state. Every single one of them. Because that's the process you have to go through to get approved to go out of state for Medicaid. So there's not an outpatient or in, inpatient mental health provider in the state that will treat him. Okay, so they send us home with nothing. This last time I talked to my son, who's getting ready to graduate from APU, he's 21. And I was telling him, you know, things that were going on with his brother and all of that. And he, he says, you know, mom, I'm studying psychology. And he goes, you and I both know there's a lot of sexism in the uh, 
you know, in our society at large, but also within the field of medicine. Look at how we treat men versus how we treat women. And then look at how we treat people of color. And he said, I wonder what would happen if you gave me power of attorney for Logan if I took him. I said, well, at this point, I'll try anything because he needs help. So the next time that Logan was having really, you know, significant behaviors, I signed power of attorney over to my son, my oldest son. He took Logan to Providence Emergency Room. They admit him just like that. They go, oh, well, it's obvious he needs care. And they start working with my son and working with my son my oldest son to try to get my youngest son care. And what happened is eventually my oldest son had to step back because he's like, you know, my, my semester is going to be starting up again and I have to work and it's his last semester. And he says, can you step back in? I said, yeah, okay. So I stepped back in and what happens? Shortly after I stepped back in, Providence has a meeting with me. There's a case manager, an RN case manager, and then a this traveling social worker from New York. And they meet with me and they go, look, Logan's been at the psychiatric emergency department for three weeks at that point. This is not an appropriate setting. And I said, well, I agree. But him coming home is also not an appropriate setting. We need to find an appropriate setting. And they said, well, we can't. Everything has waiting lists. Places are closing. Places have you know, staffing shortages. There's nowhere for him to go. And I said, well, he can't come home and be unsafe. They said, well, you either take him home or we're going to report you to OCS. I said, well, you can't do that. And they said, why not? I said, because I haven't abused my child. I haven't neglected him. I haven't abandoned him. And they said, well, that's not what OCS is for or only for. I said, yes, it is. They don't just get involved in families because this family needs, you know, some kind of therapeutic or medical help. Alaska statute governs what OCS is allowed to do. And Alaska statute says that the only way OCS can get involved with a family is if they perpetrated a crime against a child. I have not perpetrated a crime against a child. And I will not if you're asking me to. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not asking you to. I said, okay, well, how about we call OCS? Prove me wrong. So we called OCS together and OCS said, yep, mom's right. We only get involved in cases where children have been, you know, abused or neglected, including abandonment. This child has not been abandoned. Mom is still an active participant in the treatment. Mom is still working towards the goal of getting this child into appropriate treatment. Mom's taken all necessary actions. They said, mom's being protective. We can't get involved. So they hung up and the staff look at me and they said, well, we still want you to take him home. And I said, no. So I left and I went and visited my son and they reported me to the Office of Children's Services anyway. And so now, as of today, Logan has been at the Psychiatric Emergency Department and the main emergency department of Providence for a total of 32 days because we can't access any care for him. 
And not only is this across the state, but it's it's across the nation now that we're having this issue because we've exhausted all in-state resources. So now we're looking at out-of-state resources, but because of the pandemic, because of my son's age and because of some, you know, complexity of needs, appropriate placement is becoming very difficult to find. And so what we have is an eight-year-old sitting in a eight by 10 room with no windows on an adult psychiatric unit by himself where he's in a locked facility 24 hours a day. That's where we're at. That's why I'm here today. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is, it's really hard to hear. So I can only imagine how hard it is to live through. I first would like to stop and explain to some people who maybe have never had uh, somebody with an anxiety disorder in their life. I have anxiety disorder and I take a medication for it. Essentially for my brain, I had lived in a space where it would make me anxious so often that the part of my brain that produces the chemicals that make me feel anxious broke. And it just continuously produced those chemicals and the chemicals that are supposed to calm me down weren't enough anymore. It wasn't working. My brain couldn't slow down enough to take in the chemicals I needed to calm down. What your son is going through is actually very common for people who have been in um, homes where they're unsafe because there's constantly some anxiety going on in trying to make sure that you keep every everything calm and peaceful or there's anxiety going on because nothing is calm and peaceful. So Logan's situation is actually a lot more common than people may realize. And then, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, there's, there's a few different pools of numbers that we can use to kind of think, well, how often does a kid like this occur? Well, if we just take the autism piece, right? So this is a kid who, yes, he experiences autism, but he also has sensory processing disorder. And so he's like, you know, even just without the trauma, this kid can't stand the smell of coffee. Uh, he can't stand the smell of cauliflower. He can't eat certain foods. Um, so sensory-wise, he's like always overloaded, right? Um, well, how often do you see autistic kids in, in America? One in 54. One in 54 children today is diagnosed with autism. Then we think about child sexual abuse, which we know is so incredibly prevalent in the state of Alaska and across the country, right? So we know from, you know, the data that we have, one in four girls is sexually abused, one in six boys. So they average it out and say one in five children, one in five. That means 20%. 20% of all children in the state of Alaska statistically have experienced child sexual abuse. And that's not including 
physical abuse, neglect, uh, witnessing domestic violence, or any other any of the other things that Alaska leads the nation in. So the problem that I'm seeing is, I would say this, it's, I wouldn't say it's super common, but it's a lot more common than people would think. Definitely. There are more, like even my children have gone through different therapies. It's, it's pretty common for children to require therapy. And I know that many places that offer therapy will also have a side for children where they hire people who focus on children, um, including TCC's behavioral health. The problem in your situation is that um, because of Logan's disabilities, that makes it so they won't allow him to use the treatments because they, he needs more specialized care, correct? Sort of. So where we are today, yes, that is true. If you think of it like we're heaping sugar onto a plate and the, the plate is Logan and we're adding stressors. Well, if you're heaping one scoop onto the plate and you've only got one scoop, hey, that's not too bad. The problem is, is as time has progressed and we keep adding scoop after scoop after scoop, and I think of it like, you know, going to school and being repeatedly bullied and the teacher's not helping him and then the teacher's blaming him and, you know, then not being able to access care because of the pandemic or like, We've tried to access care at the Native Hospital. I spent seven months trying to rigorously access care there, and I was never able to get him care. So I think of like, we're just adding scoop after scoop. Well, what happens? Well, what once was a very small portion of sugar has now become this really big mountain of sugar because we just keep adding on to it. We could have treated this early. We could have treated this through a, um, you know, collaborative team with different, uh, you know, like a, a multi, I don't know what you call that, multi-pronged team where you've got like, oh, mental health professionals, school professionals, physical professionals, you know, this could have been a, a dynamic approach that we could have taken to give this child care. But what happens is he didn't get that. And so because he didn't get it and things kept getting worse, well, now we've outgrown his ability to access this care. So we have to go up a level. And when that doesn't work, now we've outgrown that we have to go up a level and it's escalated. Because every time we try to get something, we can't access it. So this is really, this is about an access to appropriate care to the point where he's, he's gone all the way up the chain to the very top. And what the case manager at Providence told me is, Logan has hit the ceiling in available healthcare and bounced back down. No one knows what to do with him. Wow. Okay, thank you for explaining that. It's very frustrating, right? Yeah. What are some of the lessons you've learned while advocating for the mental health of yourself and your family? That is a really, really good question. 
So I would say for me, I, I had to stop and examine why I hadn't given up, where I see a lot of people giving up, right? It, I don't see people making it this far through the system, trying to access care and then being turned down. Uh, usually people give up. They, they hit a couple barriers and they stop. And, and I understand why. And I, I had to ask myself, why do I keep going? And then it really, for me, comes down to a couple of things. The first one is that I've lost two siblings to suicide. And that was devastating for me. And so knowing that I have worked incredibly hard to prevent that in my own children. And so the second thing is I don't give up because I, I can see how with a, like my siblings, you know, things kept getting worse and getting worse, right? So we're heaping more sugar back onto that plate. Things just keep getting worse. Well, if we never address it, what happens? Things kept getting bigger and getting bigger. It gets overwhelming. One day, poof, they're not here anymore. And so I, once I realized that, I said, okay, no matter how hard it gets, I have to stay committed to keep trying every time. Don't give up. Don't quit. It's very, it's very lonely. It's hard. There are times where after I go see my son, that I'll go to the bathroom and I just cry. I cry, but because it's, it's, it's so hard. I feel like I'm fighting the whole world. I feel like I have to do it alone. I feel like I'm a bad mom because this happened and I can't be effective in getting him care. But the, the number one lesson is don't give up. Don't give up. My child is worth it. Don't give up. I'm sorry, I'm crying. Um, I'm crying too. Eh? <laughs> wow, your story is so powerful. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing and for that advice. That is amazing advice. I mean, there's... There's a lot of other things that I could say, but you know, I mean. No, that's perfect. That's what it really all boils down to. Mm -hmm. Not giving up. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about some of the issues in place with the various systems we see now. Have you found that having all of these different programs, whether they're public programs funded by the state or the federal government or private programs, um, or even programs created for a select group of individuals. Have you found that having all of these different programs have worked against each other in trying to get help? That's, that's a great question. <clears throat> so my assessment would be yes. But let me explain why. So a lot of what I've seen personally is, let's say you get a kid 
uh, who's diagnosed autistic, right? And here you are, you've never had an autism kid before, you have no idea what you're doing. And so everybody's like, oh, go to Stone Soup Group, because that's what we have here in Anchorage. Go to Stone Soup Group, go to Stone Soup Group. They can help you. A lot of people get sent to Stone Soup Group thinking, oh, they're gonna help me. And when they think of help, I think we often think of help in a tangible way, like, oh, they're gonna provide services. They'll help me get daycare or they'll help me get whatever. The problem is, is that Stone Soup Group does not provide any direct services. They're what's called a resource and referral agency only. And what I'm seeing more and more is these types of agencies popping up where all they do is people get sent to them and they tell them to go somewhere else. Well, we don't have a lack of telling people where to go. What we have is a significant lack in actual direct service care providers. We have a significant shortage of people that work, you know, with the developmentally disabled, with our elderly, people that work in childcare. And the same could be said for, you know, this medical and therapeutic programming. There's a significant lack of um, available providers. I have a theory as to why that is. I don't know how popular that's going to be, but this is my theory. When you have a child that is born with any kind of special need, healthcare in America is not cheap. And very true in Alaska because we probably have the highest healthcare costs in the country last I checked. So if the cost is prohibitive, what does that mean? It means people can't access it. So what happens is, is, well, now we have to, you know, because of Obamacare, we have to make care available to people. So how do we do that? We do that through Medicaid. Well, what happens is, is Medicaid reimburses at such a low rate, nobody wants to take it. And the people that do take it are getting paid, you know, a reduced rate to the point where they're like, well, we're going to limit how many people will take. Or, you know, they only open at certain times during the year. Or they quit taking it altogether. So, you know, a lot of this comes down to insurance. If I had regular insurance, Logan would not be experiencing any barriers in accessing care. But because our primary insurance is Medicaid, all we are experiencing is access to care because we're limited in who will accept it. And they're limited because of how little Medicaid reimburses. And because since they're making so little, they pay their staff very poorly. I think if we wanted to grow this infrastructure, which that's what it is, we need to build our healthcare infrastructure to make it more robust. If we're going to meet these needs, then what we need to do, number one, increase what we're reimbursing for Medicaid. Because let's be real, right? What's that saying? Money makes the world go round. Nobody's gonna say, well, it's Medicaid. I'm not gonna take their money. Heck no, that is not how that works. Everybody wants to make money. So if we increase what we're reimbursing through Medicaid, what happens? 
especially if it's for care, not resource and referrals, right? What we're going to see is an increase in direct service providers. We're going to see more therapists and psych providers and all of these other types of care providers being willing to take it um, or their employers being willing to take it because it pays better. I believe that once it pays better, I think that those employees should stand up and say, hey, we deserve a better wage because absolutely they're doing all the heavy lifting. And if we did that, I think that we would be able to make it to where anyone that needed these types of therapies and medical care in the state could access it and access it appropriately and in a timely fashion if we just did that one thing. But we don't, so we don't get it. People languish for over a decade sometimes, not getting any care at all because we can't be bothered to help those people. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that sort of mentality is actually really harmful because those, like, those people, which includes me, uh, are part of the community. And when we have, it's not in general, it's not until we have started the process of healing that we're able to even become contributing members of the society because so many of the issues that come along with different, like many different mental health issues um, impact your ability to work. And Absolutely. Yeah, I know for myself, when I was trying to get mental health care, it wasn't until it, it, actually did impact my ability to work and I wasn't able to, that I was finally able to get care. And they were like, okay, your problem is now serious enough. Yeah. So it makes sense. Your, your hypothesis makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you. You know, and I think it, I mean, there's, there's so many parts and pieces to this that I mean, it's kind of hard to make generalizations, but think about it this way. When your kid goes to a public school, right? And let's say they need an IEP because, I don't know, let's say they have Down syndrome. And so little Johnny needs occupational therapy. He needs physical therapy. He needs speech language pathology. At least here in the Anchorage School District, we have some of those providers and those providers can and in some cases do bill Medicaid, but every single year, the Anchorage School District has a shortage of OTs, PTs, and SLPs every year. And so every year they struggle to meet the IEP goals and objectives for their students because they don't have adequate staff. Why? Because they make more money in private practice than they do working for the school district and getting Medicaid reimbursement. And that's just one way where I'm like, if we did this one thing, there's so many different applications that would be affected that would drastically improve the quality of life for so many Alaskans. And it's not complicated, it's not hard. We could absolutely do it. We don't have to develop a study. We don't have to do committees or subcommittees, but just through more adequately funding Medicaid, OTs are making a better wage, which means they provide better for their families. Schools have more staffing available. 
which means that the kids that they're working with are actually making better gains, which means that their school report card actually reflects what those students are worth instead of what they're not able to do without the right supports. Mom and dad of little Johnny who's got Down syndrome can actually work a job instead of having to pull Johnny out to go do private practice OTPT and SLP to the tune of six hours a week because it wasn't available in his school because ASD is short-staffed. So now mom and dad are missing work. Mom and dad are financially strained. Little Johnny's being impressed. See all those little parts and pieces. One thing we could do and look at all the lives we could change just by fully adequately funding healthcare for people that need it. For people who are listening, the people that you can speak to to change the pay that Medicaid gives would be on the federal level. So that would be for those of us in Alaska, that would be um, Representative Young and then Senators, not Kawasaki, Senator Lisa Murkowski. Murkowski, there you go. Senator Murkowski and Senator Sullivan. And I don't know, I'll look it up to see when the next time they will be discussing this, but you can write to them at any time. And then um, I'll keep an eye on the federal government for when this type of thing is coming out, like a budget that would impact Medicaid or any changes to Medicaid. And I'll share that out as well. So that way we can remind them when they're making the choice. Um, Medicaid is funded significantly through the federal government, but it's also funded through the state. Oh, that's right. Our state does have part of the budget that they kick in. And, And so think of it this way, like the IDD waiver, that's determined by the state of Alaska. So... It also behooves us to contact our state legislators to let them know, because think of it this way, we're giving away billions of dollars in oil tax credits to oil companies. We wouldn't have to tax a single Alaskan and how much more quality of life could we have for people if we simply just taxed corporations that already have billions of dollars in profits? Exactly. I know that the website to find your legislators and state representatives, are they all called legislators? Um, To find your state legislators would be aklag.gov. I'll look for the exact link and put it in the description for how to find your legislators. And then one person who represents all of us is the governor. So you can also write to the governor. I know that he just recently put out a budget so we can look at it and see if there's enough for the schools and for Medicaid. And if, if you're having a hard time understanding it, you can talk to, uh, you'll have, your legislators will have local offices and people working there who can answer your different questions. So if you were to be like, I don't understand what this word means, you could call them and ask them and they can explain it. Yeah, there's also right now, uh, I think they're taking information on the um, the infrastructure bill that was passed. And so there's public comment being taken on how do we want to spend, it's a more than a billion dollars in uh, money from the federal government to build up infrastructure. Obviously, there are many ways that Alaska could spend that money 
But think of if we spent some of that on building up our healthcare infrastructure, what would that do to the quality of life for people here? And then there's also the Build Back Better Act. And that has not been passed, but that is something that was before Congress that um, last I checked, I think the House passed it and the Senate did not, but that would provide provisions for, you know, care providers, number one, child care, number two, education, housing, all, again, all of these things that impact quality of life. So it, it's really important that we read about these things. And if we feel strongly, contact our Congress people, contact our legislators, contact the governor, let them know, because this is impacting real people, including young children. It's impacting our elders. We have a responsibility. So you already talked a little bit about this. Um, what are some of the needs that you hear about in your circles that aren't being met with the systems in place today? I know that you had talked about recently um, finding more people in situations like yours. And then you had also talked a little bit about how if the schools don't have enough money, it impacts the parents' ability to be able to provide. So, you know, part of what I try to do in my everyday life is connect to people and to try to find the connections in whatever's happening, right? Why? Because, well, that's how I was raised. But two, what I found is when you start seeing the connections between things, you can be a better advocate because you see, oh, well, this string is tied to that string, tied to this string, whatever. What's the linchpin? You pull that one, it all comes crashing down, right? Well, if I'm fighting all this stuff up here and being ineffective, I need to tackle this one thing. Kill 10 birds with one stone. That's how I came up with that Medicaid idea. I was that parent at the Anchorage School District who had a kid who needed those therapies that couldn't access them. So I was the parent who had to pull my kid out sometimes 10 hours a week for him to get private therapies that he couldn't access at the school. That's more than one full day of school a week that he was missing. And I so I start talking to other parents. Who else is going through this? There are other parents that are going through it. And then I joined a, a Facebook group for parents of children with special needs. And, you know, parents post about different things, needs, or, you know, they share successes or sometimes, you know, things that don't go very well. But I started seeing a pattern of parents of young children who needed mental health care in Alaska and couldn't access it. And they're in the same boat I'm in where they're trying and trying and they're being turned away, turned away, turned away. And in some cases, these kids have very violent behaviors and they get turned away, turned away. Nobody will treat them. So now, you know, after seeing a few people post on that, I finally, I saw this one lady who was just at her wit's end. She goes, but I've tried everything. I've tried everything. And people, well-intentioned people keep making these same suggestions. Go to Stone Soup Group, you know? And she's like, they don't do anything. 
go here. And she's like, oh, they don't do anything. Uh, you know, oh, maybe you're native, go to the native hospital. She's like, they don't give us care there. I, what I told this lady is I said, okay, I believe you. And I believe you've tried everything you can. And I see how hard it is. And I know, cause I'm going through it. And I said, I'm done. I said, parents like us need to band together. We need to stand up and we need to fight as a collective for our children and their right to appropriate and adequate medical, mental health and therapeutic services. And she said, let's do it. That just happened like two days ago. And I said, okay, so we're in the process of how do we, how do we start this? Because I am seeing it and it's there, it's very real. And it's impacting families, not just in an economic stance, although it is, it impacts their ability to maintain housing. It impacts their basic safety. It impacts their mental health. These are real people with real struggles whose children just need appropriate access to real health care that can't access it. And so we're going to start fighting for that. I'm interrupting this podcast to say that since we've recorded this episode, Natasha has created a Facebook group. The Facebook group is called Alaska Coalition for Equitable Access to Care. The about section of the group page explains what the group is for. It's a nonprofit group of parents and care providers coming together solely to demand the state of Alaska legislature remove the barriers that are preventing families from accessing care for their loved ones, increasing services for individuals with special needs, and helping parents to become paid caregivers for their special needs children. I will make sure to put links to the group in the description below. That brings me into my next question. How do you do self-care with so much going on? How do you do self-care so that way you're able to keep going? Uh, I do it badly, <laughs> really badly. Uh, I just, my God, I got to laugh. That's always everyone's go-to. Are you doing self-care? No, not really. When I think of like self-care, I don't know, maybe it's a stereotype in my mind, but I always think of like Sit down in your flowery pajamas and color in a coloring book while sipping hot tea with a blankie over my lap. And I'm like, God, wouldn't I love to have the time and the space to do stuff like that? I really don't. My, my, what I do is I make sure that I eat something every day. At this point, I don't even get too picky about what it is, but I have to eat. And I noticed, I mean, I'm a big girl and here I noticed when things are tough, it's surprising how little I eat. I go a whole day without eating and not even remember, oh, geez, I forgot to eat today. So I just try to put some kind of calories into my body and I don't judge it. If, I, if all I can eat today is a Twinkie, because that's what I can grab while I'm running out of the gas station, then that's, that's it. I don't judge it. I try to drink something every day, whether if it's water, juice, coffee, doesn't, I don't drink coffee, but you know, tea, whatever. If I can get some kind of liquid into my body, great. 
Uh, I make sure that I go to the bathroom regularly because let's be real, bladder infections are awful. So, uh, you know, I take care of my basic hygiene. I make sure that I make sleep a uh, priority. You know, I try to give myself a solid six hours a night. If I can get more, great. But if not, you know, I just chalk it up a little bit. But sleep is essential, you know. Yeah, if I can move my body, great. If not, I try not to worry about it too much. Probably the most important thing I do is I just be very authentic with where I'm at. I, I don't try to, you know, I forget what it's called, where everything's like, you know, optimism. Like, oh, you always got to look on the bright side. Always got to look on the bright side. And I'm like, you know, if things are hard, it's okay to say it's really hard. I'm having a hard time. And I find that if I do that, yeah, it's going to hurt for, you know, usually a few minutes. But if I'm honest about where I'm at and I tell myself, yeah, I'm having a hard time. I feel like a bad mom. I go sit in a bathroom stall. I cry. I get it out. I feel bad. And then I move on. If something's good or happy, I laugh about it. I experience it. If something's upsetting, I experience it. I don't try to purposely guide what I think my emotions should be. I just be authentic with whatever is happening in the moment. I try to experience it and I move on because I, I don't have the time or the ability to get stuck. And by being authentic with what am I going through? I feel like I'm experiencing a full range of emotions. And only experiencing optimism is not experiencing a full range of emotions. And it's important to feel that full range of emotions, to experience it, whatever that looks like. Because if all you're ever is happy, I can guarantee you, you're missing out on a lot of life. Other than that, I don't think there's much else I do. That's really good advice. I think that was um, one of my hardest lessons learned because I had grown up in a very religious household or households. Some of the households were more religious than others. But one of the things is that you're always supposed to be positive and happy and you're like certain emotions were considered mm -hmm. negative and so you're not supposed to experience them. Or if you are, it's because you're doing something wrong. So it was a struggle for me to learn to like just how to be in certain emotions and just allowing my body to experience it because mm -hmm. they're like those, those emotions are there for a reason. But your other advice is great too. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the one you ended on. So that's the one my brain is like, okay. I don't always know what I'm feeling. I would say probably a good half of the time, at least. I have no idea. If you were to come up to me and I was upset and you'd be like, what are you feeling right now? My first response would be, I have no clue. But like you said, I can feel it in my body, right? Yeah. I used to try to stuff that and that was like drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Or smoking or pills or, you know, 
whatever else, trying to drown it away. Heck, even eating, going, feeling something, you gotta cover it. And now I don't try to cover it. I don't even try to name it. I mean, if I can, great, but I just have to let myself experience it. Mm -hmm. And then once, and you know, it's, it's funny how fleeting emotions really are. Yeah. Once you feel it, it tends to just dissipate. That's all I do. My next question is, is there any hope out there for other families like yours? Is there any hope? That's kind of a tough question. I mean, I guess where my, so I would like want to clarify, where are we thinking that hope is coming from? Is it hope that my son's going to get care? Is it hope that I'm not alone? Is it hope that things are going to get better? I mean, you know, so I mean, you know, that's, I guess, you know, if, if I had to stop and think about it, I would say, do I have hope in our healthcare system? No, no, I don't. I, they've consistently let me down and let my children down. I, I don't have hope in them. Do I have hope that I'm not going through this alone? Yeah, I really do. There's been some really amazing people that have really stepped up in in so many different ways that, you know, it's, it's maybe not the ways that I wanted, but it's the ways that they could do it. And I, I've had to reconcile with like, what are my expectations versus what can people really do, right? That's where practicing gratitude comes in. No, nobody's going to swoop in and save me from my, you know, really difficult life and buy me a mansion. But tonight, after we get done here, I'm going to go have dinner with uh, a lady named Judy and her husband, Jed, and their family. And those people give me a lot of stinking hope. And, you know, when my family, so actually, we were living in a homeless shelter. And my daughter goes, Mom, I'm going to do a GoFundMe because we're homeless. This was just a couple months ago throughout this whole thing. She goes, I'm going to do GoFundMe. She raised over $13,000 for us to be able to try to get into a home. And I'll tell you, that surpassed my wildest dreams. So I was like, $13,000. Wow. And I, I was like, blew my mind. And then we found out, oh, we're probably not going to be eligible for benefits. I have to start really going back to work. I'd been working towards going back to work, but now it's really got to happen. So this organization called Stand Up Alaska found out that I was interested in working. Erin uh, Jackson and Mita DeWitt and um, Tammy Kruger and these other just amazing people. And Erin was like, I want you to come work for me. And I was like, but I don't have a degree. And she goes, you don't need one. I want you. And I started working for them. It's been part-time because I'm trying to, I haven't worked in forever. I've been on disability for my own mental health stuff, right? So they've been incredibly patient and, and generous and kind. They give me hope because where other employers wouldn't have worked with me, and they would have saw all my challenges. Aaron and Stand Up Alaska were like, no, look, we see 
Look at all of your strengths. Look at what you're trying to accomplish. Look at what you are accomplishing. Look at all these other people that you're trying to help while you're going through this. Like that's what we want. You are what we want. And I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I cried because that gave me a hope that, you know what? I can have a better life and I can achieve it through really good connections like that. You know, by getting a good employer like that, by getting good friends like, uh, you know, Judy and Jed. And I have, you know, that's the one thing that I've really been blessed with is the ability to just start creating these wonderful friendships with so many people. Maybe they can't be there. Heck, they probably maybe can't even do a lot. But people have sent me text messages, all kinds of text messages. They sent me Facebook messages. They post on my Facebook. You know, just words of encouragement. That gives me hope. Because what I know is that the way we get through this thing called life is we get through it together. That's how we be successful. That's how our kids are going to grow up to be wonderful people. That's how we treat people in recovery, right? It's not an I program, it's a we program. We have to get through this together. That's what gives me hope, is these amazing people in my life. E, yes. <laughs> so what I am taking from what you're saying is that do not put hope in the systems put in place by people but put hope in your community. And I do want to say that if you start speaking up and finding that there's pushback, you're not in the right community. And keep speaking up until you find those people who are willing to stand with you as you're speaking, who are willing to stand behind your voice and lift you and your voice up and help you take care of your family. So that's the additional that I'm going to put on onto what what Natasha or yeah, what Natasha is saying, because it's true. I myself found hope through my community and I was really blown back by how amazingly, um, how much of a difference the community can make. I don't think a lot of my friends realize that just them reaching out every once in a while and saying, Hey, I've been thinking about you you're an amazing person. I see, I see the work you're doing, how much it means to me. Or when people just reach out and say, Hey, you know, I, I saw your post. I know you're going through a hard time. I just want you to know that I'm here for anything you need. That's also super helpful. And then like my best friend, of course, will be like, Hey, I see your post. I see what's going on. Here's some funny memes or something, you know, just to take your mind off of it when you're when you're ready to get back into dealing with your daily life and stuff like that. And having people as I'm working with different groups to try to help make changes that would positively impact the community. Many of the people, like you had mentioned, Aaron Jackson, are amazing. And they just bring so much life and so much energy and so many different emotions and they're real with their emotions too. They don't try to sugarcoat everything. They just, they're like, 
the work we're doing right now sucks or it's very tiring or you know they'll come back from vacation going hey let's get into this you know like i'm i'm hyped up and ready to go you need to find the people who understand your limitations and see that you're willing to do the work even with the limitations and not the people who are just looking for the end goal definitely i yeah i i completely agree and i think too you know i mean one of the ways that I've really tried to shift my life is, you know, when I was growing up, and we talked about this earlier, I probably, I think maybe before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, being Native and when growing up in rural Alaska and how, you know, for me, it was really shameful to be Native. And I, I have had to unlearn that as an adult, right? So kind of like going through my own decolonization process and then like indigenizing it. And when I think of like, how did our people survive the harshest climate, the some of the harshest terrains and do it successfully for, you know, what, 15,000 years, they didn't do it alone. They didn't do it by building systems. What did they do? They did it together. When we do that, I feel like we're, we're living in a good way, right? We're living in good relationship with each other. We're, you know, laughing, smiling, sharing food, supporting each other when, you know, a loved one dies. That is what life is about. It's not about these artificial systems that we keep creating as a means of, you know, creating an economy at the expense of the people. So, no, I, I don't have hope in systems. I have every hope in, in people, even the really awful ones that I probably don't like a lot of the times. Guess what? I've seen people change. It's possible. That's living our cultural values. That's living in a good way. And that's what I strive to do today. I don't do it perfectly, but that's my goal. That's what I try to do. And I feel like when we do that, I feel better about myself. I like feeling good about myself. I think those are the wisest words I've heard in a long time. You made me cry. Aw. <laughs> and I got old tissue. I'm sitting over here with uh, McDonald's napkins, <laughs> which don't like those are made for oil. So those aren't very helpful. Right. So my final question, and it's the final one that I ask every guest is, is there a question that I don't understand enough to ask? And then what is the answer to that question? Well, I mean, so again, I guess I, I would say in what context are we putting this in the context of mental health or access to mental health or Medicaid or, uh, you know, systems? That's, that's a lot. It is a lot. I guess if there was one that I could try to like use as a blanket, like maybe it'll cover everything, but that's kind of tough is, um, it's very important to know your rights. Like, so the question would be, what are my rights, right? 
because we all, when we think of rights, we all think of like the Bill of Rights, right? Like I have the right to not incriminate myself or whatever. It's a right to free speech and not wear a mask or whatever. But in most of these, those things that I listed, uh, you have rights. You know, if you apply for Medicaid and your Medicaid application is not processed in a timely manner, you have rights and legal recourse. Uh, if your Medicaid application is wrongfully denied, you have rights, you have legal recourse. If you are trying to access care and that care is being denied, for instance, if you're experiencing a medical emergency and you go to the hospital, that hospital cannot deny you care. You have rights. If those rights are violated, you have the ability to pursue legal recourse. I think so often what I see with disenfranchised people is they are not aware of their rights. They don't know their rights. And so the question would be, well, you know, what do I not know? Well, what are your rights? So then how do you answer that? I, I always tell people the sad answer is you gotta read, um, but it's available. And if anybody would like help accessing that information, I mean, I can give you my contact information to put with the link and people are able to contact me. Let me preface this by saying I am not a lawyer, but there are ways that you can self-advocate um, and that you can get advocacy for these things that doesn't require a lawyer, right? It's important to know that because so often I think people are disenfranchised. They are taken advantage of. They are stripped of their, their dignity and you know self-worth by these systems. Nobody's gonna go in and say, wait, we need to stop and make sure this lady has her rights. No, that does not happen. Know your rights, learn them, and then try to find it within yourself to be able to stand up for them. And if you can't, ask for help. Sometimes that help is a friend. Sometimes that help is a case manager. Sometimes that help is an advocate or a legal advocate. Whatever it is, you don't have to go through it alone. You don't. And there are times when you do win the battle. So don't give up. Don't give up. That's it. First, I'd like to thank you again for coming on. Uh, you have educated me so much and I already knew of your story. So this has been very, very helpful. And I hope uh, it inspires other people to speak up and to help lift your story and the stories of others like yours and to make changes, to make real changes. I would like to thank my donor for supporting me and if you would like to donate, you can go to caffeinewithkunan.com and find the link there. I currently don't have anything for people who donate, but as this grows, I will start to create stuff. I have some things I have been considering. I just haven't decided whether or not to set them up yet or to go with a different plan. For those who may not know how to spell my name, it's K-U-N-A-A-N, so caffeine with K-U-N-A-A-N.com. And then I would also like to thank KWRK for airing my podcasts. 
and it is volunteer run. So if you would like to support them, go to kwrk.org. Okay, peoples, I'm going to wrap it up here. I hope you're all able to stay warm. And I would like to remind you to be kind to others and to yourself and to wear a mask when you go in public. Thank you so much for joining me and have a great night. Thank